In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 31. In this final chapter of 1 Samuel, King Saul's reign comes to an end in a pretty ignoble way. Saul and his army face the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, but they are defeated and flee. The Philistines pursue them and kill Jonathan and Abinadab, pardon me, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. Saul himself is critically wounded by the Philistine archers, and he asks his armor bearer to kill him, but he refuses. So Saul takes matters into his own hands. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, June 12th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Many thanks to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation for their continued support of Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry that makes Lutheran resources available in different languages, and you can find more uh, about their work of translating and publications at lhfmissions.org. Well, over the past few weeks, we've explored the captivating book of 1 Samuel together. Lots of twists and turns and triumphs and tragedies. You'll remember we began with Hannah, who fervently prayed for a child and was blessed with the birth of her son, Samuel, who would become a prophet and the last judge, guiding Israel through a transformative era. And of course, he anointed the first king, despite his resistance to. Saul's reign started with a promise, but his insecurities and disobedience to God's commandments led to a steady decline. And then we were introduced to David a shepherd boy armed with faith and a slingshot who bravely faced the fearsome Goliath as the Philistine threat loomed. David's military triumphs, that and those who would come, were, well, captured the nation's adoration. He was super popular, and it fueled King Saul's jealousy, which drove Saul to relentlessly pursue David, forcing him to wander the wilderness, but he gathered followers along the way. Remarkably, David had multiple opportunities to take Saul's life, yet he refused out of recognition that he was God's anointed. David's unwavering respect for the king's anointing was a testament to his character and his trust in God's plan. So this morning, then, as we approach the final chapter of 1 Samuel, we're made privy to the fulfillment of prophecy regarding King Saul and his son's demise. And to help us wrap up 1 Samuel and set the stage for 2 Samuel, I'm excited to welcome my guest, the Reverend Dennis McFadden. He's pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Brother McFadden, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you. I do have to correct you, though. I'm one of 18 pastors at Emmanuel, and there are four of us who serve on staff as pastoral assistants part-time. Most of us are retired, and we have two full-time pastors. So I'm one of the part-time guys. Okay, well, sounds good. So I'll say uh, a pastor of Lutheran, <laughs> Emmanuel Lutheran Church then. Sounds great. Well, brother, well, you know what? I had to be corrected because I don't know. I've never talked to you on the air. I know we're Facebook no. friends. Uh, but I tell you what, I, I know you've been on other KFUO programs, but this is the first time that you've been on Thy Strong Word with me as host anyway. So would you take a few moments, share with the people at home a little bit about yourself and, and your ministry and how God is working through you? And uh, I guess the saints there in Emmanuel, too. 
Well, I came into Lutheranism late in life. My first visit to a Lutheran church was 11 and a half years ago when my wife and I moved to Fort Wayne from Los Angeles. Uh, in L.A., my administrative assistant in a large retirement home uh, begged me to visit an LCMS church, and I said, Kathy, why would I want to do that? You guys are like Catholic light. I've been a Baptist my whole life. And uh, as a favor to her, we visited uh, Emmanuel, and when I heard uh, confession absolution, I cried. Uh, when the pastor visited me and gave me a Luther a uh, small catechism with uh, explanations. I read it in one sitting, all 300 and some pages, emailed him promptly the next morning. Uh, I, how do I sign up? I want to be a Lutheran. And two months later, on the 34th anniversary of my American Baptist ordination, um, my wife and I were confirmed. Two years later, uh, after an hour and a half in St. Louis meeting with the colloquy committee, uh, I was confirmed as a member of the ministerium and I've been a uh, LCMS pastor since then, 2014, um, and uh, have done full-time uh, vacancy. And uh, the last several years have been a 20-hour-a-week uh, part-time pastor at Emmanuel, where I do a lot of Bible teaching, uh, shut-in visitation, hospital visits, uh, and Sunday morning Bible classes. So that's uh, this Sunday. I'll be preach uh, this weekend. I'll be preaching three times, while the senior pastor and associate are away. So uh, I do a little bit of 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 utility ball playing. Well, that sounds great. I'm sure I'm sure they're blessed to have you there. Your story is similar to mine. You know, I grew up Baptist for the most part and came to Lutheranism late in life. Had a lot of the same apprehensions that you did, but uh, what a blessing the Lutheran confessions it, it, are. Absolutely. And uh, fact, for those uh, of the, you who have been, well, I was going to say, for those of you who have been lifelong Lutherans, um, you know, it, you can. It's easy to take for granted the the clarity of the gospel uh, that comes in in the Lutheran tradition. But uh, you really, you really shouldn't. You really shouldn't. Absolutely. And this this week, I'll be teaching. Uh, we're doing a summer Bible class. The two full time pastors and I are team teaching a class on the small catechism, and then I'll be doing a class all fall on the large catechism. I love our confessions. Absolutely. I, and, and so I tell you what, you know what, let's, uh, let's finish up first Samuel today, but before we do, uh, would you start us off with a word of prayer, please? Almighty and most merciful God, you sent your son, Jesus Christ to seek and to save the lost graciously open our ears and our hearts to hear his call to follow him by faith that we may feast with him forever in his kingdom through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, I've already pretty much recapped, uh, well, I tried to in very broad brush strokes. The you gave the whole chapter. What else, what else is there to talk about? <laughs> well, I covered the chapter. I covered the whole book, you know, but it's nice to dig into. I, I, I like to, you know, give, I guess what the old school way of preaching is, right? You, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. And so exactly. that's what we're going to do a little bit today. Um, however, I didn't go into much detail. Uh, would you like to share a little bit about where exactly we are, though, um, with, I guess, you know, David and Ziklag and the spoil? Maybe just catch people up if they missed yesterday, uh, Friday's yeah. episode. Well, this, 
we're at an exciting point. We're probably in March, April of 1009. And our narrative broke off at the end of 28 and then uh, broke off again at uh, the end of 29. And in a sense, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to catch what David is doing at the same time Saul is failing miserably. David is succeeding. And in that sense, we've got, as we've had all the way through uh, 1 Samuel, uh, a series of contrasts really between uh, those who put their faith in God and those who turn away from faith in God. And Saul is the poster boy of uh, human efforts run amok, resulting in failure. And David uh, is the one who, despite his very human, sinful nature, uh, keeps coming back to trust in God and keeps coming back with repentance. So in a sense, you have to read chapter 31 with what goes before it in mind, because at the very same time that David is having a great victory in the South, Saul is having a miserable failure in the North. Uh, yeah, and, and so everything is kind of going wrong for Saul, and we we find ourselves at really a climax, as you said, in the whole narrative. And, and of course, we had to find a place to stop, and so we we stopped on Friday. Uh, but but now we're picking it up as it continues. I'm going to read the first oh seven verses. It's the whole thing's only uh, thirteen verses, but I'm going to read the first half uh, right now. Chapter thirty-one. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So there is a lot of information kind of being packed into these seven verses. Um, just, I guess, starting at the top, where else? You know, the Philistines are overtaking Saul and his sons. Saul and his sons are on the battlefield, including Jonathan. And uh, this, this, what happens, their, their demise is in fulfillment of a prophecy, is it not? It absolutely is. Uh, you're, now, again, a little bit of background. Uh, step one, the Philistines decide they're going to fight Israel and insist David go along. Then step two, in getting ready for it, they assemble and they decide to exclude David because of his connection to Israel. Then step three, David heads uh, south to Ziklag, uh, where the Philistines go north to the Jezreel Valley. Step four, 
the Philistines set up their camp in Shunem on the northern side of the Jezreel Valley. And, and as a little bit of background for those who haven't been there, um, the Jezreel Valley separates the Carmel Range in the south from the area where Nazareth is, just north of that. And so sometimes referred to as the Jezreel Valley or the Valley of Armageddon. It's that valley that runs between uh, Megiddo and the Mount Carmel Range on the south and and the, and Nazareth on the north. And so they're 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 gonna they're gonna locate the Philistines are gonna locate themselves just below the hill of Morath in the Jezreel Valley. And uh, that's where they set up their camp. And Saul, realizing how strong they are, does an end-around run to the other side, to the north side of the hill of Morath, to meet with a medium of Endor and receives a prophecy that all is going to go badly for him in the battle. And so I think that's what you're what you're referring to there. Right, absolutely. And and we see that that the you know the demise of Saul's line even is being accomplished here. Not everybody, but but we see them falling at the hands of the the Philistines. The one of the things that I find interesting about this is as we look at verse three, the the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was. The English says badly wounded by the archers. Uh, maybe even fatally wounded is a better way to say it. For instance, he would have died from this particular attack. But Saul, anyway. dis yeah, he would have died he, if he would have just, I guess, waited, so to speak. But he, he gives us a reason why he wants his armor bearer to kill him. And, and that is because of these uncircumcised, right? The people who are, he doesn't want his body to be, well, I guess he just doesn't want to, I don't know. What does he not, what does he want? Because I was thinking he doesn't want his body to be, uh, you know, well, I guess he, uh, molested he, he neither, by the other people. He doesn't, he, well, go he, ahead. two things. He doesn't want to be tortured and he doesn't want to be uh, uh, ceremonially humiliated by his armor being stripped and, and his body being uh, treated disrespectfully. So you've got the after-death disrespect and the before-death fear of, of torture in play here. And again, the reminder is, you know, you've you've uh, Samuel tell the uh, first Samuel tells us David is is smiting Amalekites and the Philistines are smiting Saul. And as a result of that, the Amalekites are going to run away. And as a result of that, the Israelites are going to run away. And in the midst of that, Saul, fatally wounded, realizes, oh, my goodness, what in the world am I going to do? And decides that he would like to have his armor bearer run him through uh, so that he not be left alive to be toyed with by uh, his enemies. And, and that makes sense, certainly the torture and everything else. Of course, that doesn't prevent any post-death, you know, messing with him or— And, the, and that's uh, exactly know, what they did do, yeah. Well, they did. They did. Uh, but, but you know, and we learn later that an Amalekite takes credit for taking Saul's life. That's in the very next chapter. Mm -hmm. um, but right here, you know, he's saying, draw your sword and thrust me through, regardless of the fact that the the armor bearer doesn't want to do this out of fear. It doesn't give us why he feared greatly. Did he fear because he doesn't want to be the one to take the life of the king? Is he because, you know, because even David's 
David will chastise later this Amalekite by saying, you know, how dare you put your hand out to destroy Yahweh's anointed? So perhaps his fear is of God. Um, but also, this wouldn't necessarily be lawful before God. Saul, again, he's going to die from his wounds, but this sort of valiant, like, I'm going to take my own life or I'm going to cause or help someone or have someone help me take my own life. Um, not that Saul exactly is a is a good example of following God's will, but this is yet another time where he's really disobeying God's will for life. He, he, he is, and I think a little hint, there, there's an ambiguity in the text and and as to whose sword this is. If indeed it's, it's Saul's sword, that's one thing, but if it happens to be the armor-bearer's sword, as some commentators think, then to be the one to put to death the king with your own sword would look even worse for the guy. I, I tend to think when you look at how first Samuel describes David's horror at the thought of taking, laying a hand against the Lord's anointed several times before, and then what's said in the next chapter, the beginning of, of uh, second Samuel uh, chapter one, as he, as you say, chastises the Amalekite for laying his hand against the Lord's anointed. I think it we're meant to see the uh, armor bearer as kind of an echo of David's own respect for the the office of the king and respect for for the order that God establishes, and that's that's how I read it, and I think that's how Samuel, the, the author of First Samuel, wants us to read it, as as that showing that not touching the Lord's anointed. Uh, talk to me more, though, about this ambiguity, because the armor bearer says, I'm not going to do it because he's afraid of being the one who basically uh, is responsible, even if he's going to die anyway, for ending, growing the life of the Lord's anointed. It says he feared greatly, but then says Saul took, and the, the way the English translate it, his own sword and fell upon it. Yeah. I assume that's where the ambiguity is. Is it, yes, is because, it his because own in sword? Yeah, in chapter, in verse 4, Saul asks him to draw his sword and pierce him through, lest the uncircumcised come and get him. And when he refuses, then Saul takes his own sword and falls upon it. And it, it's, it's interesting how Luther's pastor describes some of these deaths, the death of Saul's son and Saul. He says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is no less true for the righteous Jonathan who died fighting for the Lord's inheritance for the righteous through the, though they die early will be at rest as you read the deaths of the righteous whom the world has judged to be contemptible evil. But against others, it says in the Psalm, the death of the wicked is very evil. And you read here as it applies to Saul who did not hope in God of the God of Israel and instead consulted the soothsayer, as it says in first Chronicles. So you've got Bugenhagen uh, saying that, you know, applying death, in the sight of the Lord, the death of his saints is precious, but the death of the disobedient is is awful. It's evil. And that's exactly what we have here. We have Jonathan, uh, a good prince who dies, tragically. And we have Saul, a flawed, disobedient king, dying. And it's it's an evil end, not a not a honorable one. Well, and, and I guess what I was also thinking of that stood out when you said it was ambiguous is that if Saul is taking the sword of the armor bearer, would the armor bearer have a sword? I would assume he would. I, so I'm just, I, what I'm thinking is, yeah. 
I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking is, is then when it says that, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And I, I have to admit, I've always thought that as, well, he himself either feared being tortured or he saw that escape was not possible or he was just lamenting greatly over the death of his king. But it, it sounds to me that it could have very well been he didn't want to be blamed because Saul has just used his sword to kill himself. People are going to look at that and say the armor bearer killed Saul, yeah. and uh, which makes Saul's suicide not only that more egregious, but also you know he's basically framing somebody in death. So yeah. I, that's why I that's why I was um, surprised by the idea of ambiguity because I guess I've always understood it as Saul took he fell on his own sword. Well, that's how I take it. I, I take Saul fell on his sword and the armor bearer fell on his sword that, that Saul had asked him to draw and to kill him, which he Got refused to do. But then once Saul is dead, uh, as often as the case with bodyguards, if they have failed to succeed in their mission to protect the life of their their charge, they see it as the only honorable way out to end their own life is how I took it. So we have examples of that very thing, even in the book of Acts, right? So Acts 16, um, the Apostle Paul keeps the Philipp, uh, Philippian jailer from taking his own life. Um, so that makes sense. You know, uh, just to read that, Acts 16, 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. Everybody's still here. <laughs> so, but we, we see this. Um, this idea of people taking their own life out of fear. And the Bible doesn't talk a lot about suicide specifically. It does there are only mention... there are only six there are only six suicides or assisted suicide attempts reported in scripture. You have Saul's armor bearer, you have Abimelech, you have Ahithophel, you have Zimri, and you have Judas, of course, in the New Testament. So you really only have six who either directly or assisted in the suicide uh, in Scripture. And it's interesting that I think we should read anything by the fact that the, the Scripture does not record any direct words, either of approbation or condemnation. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't give us a value judgment in the verses that record the suicides. But I think it's safe to say that in the general biblical view is life is a gift of God, because we're made in the image of God, and the unlawful taking of life is a violation of the of the Ten Commandments. It's uh, it's uh, an inappropriate thing for anyone to do, uh, even though the Bible seems to understand the circumstances in the sense that it records the the pathos of what of what these people did, and doesn't doesn't move beyond that to condemn it. Because the this, this condemnation of taking one's own life is so clear in Scripture, generally, I think. Uh, agreed. You know, and it's very difficult to exercise a proper distinction between law and gospel over the radio to a a, a wider audience. Uh, but while suicide certainly isn't this, well, I, I guess I'm going to declare <laughs> not this unforgivable sin. We don't see this idea that no. suicide's automatically keeping you out of heaven. That people who have uh, right suffered uh, the the fate of suicide or should be excluded from Christian cemeteries, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, life is is just 
immensely important and precious and is seen as a gift throughout the scripture um, and is not absolutely not the way that God would want. And, and for those who might be struggling with that, I think it's worth saying that there's help out there and, and reach out absolutely. for help to your pastor and uh, to other resources. But anyway, so he falls on his sword because he's afraid of being tortured. He sees escape as completely impossible. And and then Saul, it says Saul died. Um, and his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men uh, all died on the same day together. So it reminds me back in not too long ago, chapter 28, we have the Witch of Endor and uh, the personage of uh, Samuel, whether we're going to say that is Samuel or not, we, we see that same, this personage of Samuel says, um, uh, Yahweh will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. Yahweh will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So whether uh, uh, demonic or God making an exception for Samuel or just delivering a message through the person of Samuel, we, we never did settle on that. Um, still, it comes true. It comes true. And yeah. his, uh, his sons are now in the place of the dead is about as much as we can say. Well, three of his sons are. Uh, and, and that's one of the and that's one of the problems with that as as actual Samuel, because not all of Saul's sons died the next day and they didn't all go into the realm of the dead. And it said that the camp of Israel would be delivered over the next day and Abner didn't get delivered over. And if Abner's mm -hmm. not part of the camp of Israel, who is he? I mean, he was about the consummate member of the camp of Israel as the general. And um Saul wasn't technically handed over to the Philistines. He did the deed himself. And uh, and if it were Samuel, I would have thought he would have, first off, not only complained about being brought up from the depths of the earth, <laughs> but condemned uh, condemned Saul for cavorting, cavorting with uh, mediums and the occult. So, and he doesn't do that. So I'm not, uh, you know, I, I lean more toward Luther and, 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 those who have argued that it wasn't a real appearance of of Samuel to Saul, but I stand against most of the modern commentators on that, I guess, because I think most moderns assume that it was a real appearance by uh, uh, Samuel to Saul, and I tend to think it was more of a, a demonic impersonation that uh, happened, that got allowed to happen because Saul was was going against God in the first place. And so God permitted this medium to do her thing and to conjure up something demonic that uh, terrified Saul. And so it's partly accurate. It's largely accurate, but it's got enough, you know, inaccuracy to it to be a little less than a real prophecy in my book, I guess. But yeah, it, no, I it, think it's an interesting... It certainly scared, it certainly scared the, the, the willies out of, out of, out of Saul. Well, and the and the medium for that matter, she, she yeah, hollers indeed. when it happens. I, I always suppose that the the reason why she screams is because you know it's the first time that it's actually happened. You know, usually she's been faking <laughs> I would agree. it. I would agree. But um, oh, actually, my goodness, I it lean, worked. Yeah, <laughs> it actually exactly. Did it. 
I, I, uh, I lean towards the idea that this is demonic too, although I hold open the idea that it might be similar to the transfiguration or something like that. We do see yeah. people who have passed sure, on, but, sure. but I, you know, I, regardless though, you're absolutely right. It's not fulfilled perfectly. Um, you could be really generous and twist it to make it fit, but still we have Saul and his three sons as armor bearer. Everybody dies together. And then when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the nation of Israel had fled, they abandoned their cities. We're going to pick up with that idea as soon as we come back from our break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, uh, Pastor McFadden and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 31. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dennis McFadden, one of the helping pastors at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're uh, so glad that you're with us this morning. I do hope that you're enjoying our discussion of God's Word. You can catch the program or invite your friends and family to catch it in St. Louis on AM 850, but it can also be streamed live or on demand at kfuo.org. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, or even better, you can download KFUO's own mobile app for Apple and Android. You can subscribe to the show there, listen to all of KFUO's great content, or at least most of it, I'm pretty sure. You can also listen live through that app. And I also enjoy hearing from you. You can reach out to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and say hello. Well, brother, all right, we are back. And so before the break, we were just at the point where the Israelites are hearing that the king is dead. And so they're on the other side of the valley, and they see that the uh, men of Israel had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead. And then it says, and they abandoned their cities and fled. Well, that didn't just happen in a moment. I suppose it's talking about something that happened over time as the Philistines come and take over and they're and they're living in the cities of the people. Yeah, this is this is an incredible thing. Uh I actually I'm going to be taking uh 50 of our people to Bet Shan uh next uh winter as part of a 11-day uh, Israel trip and we're going to go through these very areas of, of the Jezreel Valley and Ehilam Oren, Mount Gilboa. I've I've been in that area a half dozen times already, but the thing about it that's interesting is the strategic importance of Bet Sha'an. Um, 
at the time that we're looking at here, we're going to learn about the, the, the temples to the gods on the top of that hill that overlooks the lower area. Later on, after the Philistines were out of the, out of the picture, uh, that, that area becomes one of the 10 cities of the Decapolis. And the reason is it is on the, the trunk road between Egypt all the way to the Persian Gulf. People would take uh, their trade from Egypt through the Valley of Jezreel, where this battle is being fought, that go on to Damascus, Aleppo, Babylon, and down the Euphrates River all the way to the Persian Gulf. So this was an incredibly strategic area. And by the, and by the Philistines taking it over, it cuts Israel in half. And the irony is, to use our categories, Saul was originally hired to deal with the Philistine problem, and his life ends with a disaster more catastrophic than anything he ever faced before. And, it, and his victories against the Philistines early on pale in comparison to the abject catastrophic failure that takes place now, as it just undoes anything good he did in dealing with the Philistines. Wow. And and everything I think they're overcome in this particular battle probably because it is a valley. Their chariots have this, you know, overwhelming the chariots, tactical advantage. The chariots have the tactical advantage in the valley, which is why the Israelites fled to the to the hills of Gilboa, because there right. the chariots couldn't travel. But even there, uh again, it's 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 another one of these things we see all the way through. Uh, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. When God's people abandon him, he delivers them into the hands of their enemies. And one of the, the standard foils all the way back to the time of the judges for Israel were the Philistines. And it seems like whenever the, the Israelites abandoned God, uh, he, he would allow the Philistines to come in and, and to subject them. Hmm. Well, so and not only that, long-standing problem. Yeah, and, and and things have kind of been erased, as as you said. Also, you know, Saul's gains, right? The, the Philistines essentially restores all of these towns back to the way it was, you know, thirty, forty years before that. His loss was more spectacular than any of his gains. Wow. Well. We have what happens next then being also pretty common among those who are engaged in warfare during this reason. People are taking trophies, uh, the very thing that Saul was worried about. Uh, let's start with verse 8. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. 
All right, so two different events being covered here. The first is, you know, the Philistines are coming, and I guess they're looting the bodies, right? Which makes sense. It's hard to make weapons. So they're coming, and they're trying to get as much um, military equipment they can off the the bodies of the Philistines. I mean, sorry, the Israelites. Absolutely. And in the process of doing it, they come upon the body of Saul. And what better trophy than Saul? Uh, It was early in Saul's reign when uh, David... uh, took off the head of their champion, Goliath, and he was displayed. So now they're returning the favor by taking off the head of Saul, and they're going to uh, pass it around, if you will, to uh, to some of their places. Uh, I, I was struck by that word, good news. Uh, yeah. they, the, the Philistines have a gospel. Anytime people think they've beaten God, uh, they are delighted. They just rejoice. And even today, some of the opponents we face uh, treat their demonic message as as good news. Uh, they proclaim the good news of Saul's death. And it was good news to the Philistines. It was good news to their idols. They passed that good news all over, and they wanted to make a big deal about it. And then they take and, and they... Uh, they install uh, just as as the captured ark had been installed in the temple of of Dagon in 1 Samuel 5 now the head now the armor of the dead king is put in the temple of the Asherot the female deity uh, right worship next to Dagon and archaeology tells us there were there were two temples on the top of Bethshan and it's very possible that that uh, that's what they did they put the uh, uh, they use those two temples uh, to mock and scorn the living God. And one would have been de- dedicated to Dagon and the other to the Asherot. And so Saul's head and armor were displayed by the Philistines. And uh, in this famous junction city where, where anybody going south or anybody going north would come by and they hoped that they would be able to proclaim their gospel to the world that uh, they had beaten Israel's God, Yahweh, and look at what they've done. And uh, it, it just it's a it's a tragic, awful scene. It really is, you know, and when they hang the bodies in Beth Sheen, you know, they, they're hanging just their bodies without their heads because the heads have been right. taken as trophies. They're probably um, is this a pretty actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Is this is this a pretty common thing that they would have done anyway, or are 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 they thinking even back to Goliath that David takes their champion and cuts off his head and and he David also carries that head around, brings it to Saul at one point. Yeah, I, I think the fact that David did it was because it would have been a custom in time of warfare back then to uh, to mutilate a body and and particularly to decapitate it. You usually strip the body of its armor and cut off the head. And uh, so I see that as kind of a uh, triumphalism uh, on their part that they have, and they're just rejoicing. And it isn't just the Israelites they're beating because they there are hints in this chapter that, that they view this as a battle between their gods and Israel's gods. And they beat Yahweh and they just can't help but, but proclaim that good news that they have beaten and humiliated Yahweh by beating and humiliating his his king. And, well, the and inhabitants of well, I could say the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead are horrified, though, at what happens. I well, mean, they, because they, yeah, yeah, because because Saul's Saul's in a sense the thing that cinched his 
right to become king in the first place was his action to rescue the people of Jabesh Gilead. And so they have a long memory, and they remembered that 40 years earlier almost, uh, Saul's first public act was was uh, one of rescuing them, and so they feel that they need to repay the honor of uh, acting uh, honorably towards Saul, even in his humiliating death. And so they they do this this midnight run, this 12 to 14 mile trip at night. They have to cross the Jordan River. It's dangerous. They're in enemy territory. They're in Philistine. Uh, when they get into the, uh, the Jezreel Valley, they're in Philistine territory. So they're coming from Jabesh Gilead across the Jordan. They're going to Bet Shean. And if you go to Bet Shean, the, uh, the tell is a couple hundred feet above the existing uh, ruins of the Decapolis city. And so this is not a, a city that is on level ground. This is a city that is a couple hundred feet elevated above the surrounding area. And so they, they have to uh, mount that hill and get to the top of it to get to the, uh, the bodies of, of Saul and his sons in order to retrieve them. I, I like the way uh, uh, one person referred to it as said it, it involves stealth and courage. And that's exactly what we see. There's, there's a good measure of stealth and courage on the part of these uh, valiant men, it calls them, from uh, uh, Jabesh Gilead. Stealth and courage are shown as, as they're willing to do this. And then the other thing they do that's interesting, we, usually, we, we are so accustomed to people doing cremation today that we, we don't think twice about it. But in biblical times, uh, you would not cremate a body typically. Uh, that you of someone you liked, you you would do it uh, to humiliate your enemy, and so they're not really cremating Saul's body; they're just burning off the flesh because they want to get the 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 mutilated remains out of the way, so that they can take his bones and they can bury them in an honorable way. So they're not really doing a cremation so much as they're they're trying to prepare his bones for for burial. And to bury them decently well, and honorably. Well, and not only that, I suppose, but once they don't look like Saul and his sons anymore, just bones aren't going to communicate the same message. There's, exactly. It's going to be more. Uh, it's going to be less desirable to steal his bones for any particular yep, yep. Uh, reason. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and that first act of uh, Saul, his public deed, that was an interesting story in and of itself. Back in First Samuel 11, folks, remember that's the one where. The um, it's the uh, Ammonites, right? They go and they they go to the they they take over uh, Jabesh Gilead, and the people of Jabesh are like, okay, just we'll make a treaty, we'll serve you, and that's where they said, well, if you gouge out all your right eyes and bring disgrace yeah. to all Israel, yeah. then we'll right. And then Saul hears about it, and he musters up the forces. That's um, that's sort of the promising start that Saul got, that he was going to be this great warrior and defend Israel and, and, and be, a, you know, a strong force for God's people. And, of course, it kind of goes downhill from there. But, but they, as you said, they have a long memory. They remember that. And, and, and of course, also Saul's own tribe, Benjamin, finds much of its origins in oh, Jabesh. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we learn about that in Judges. Yep. So, yeah, so the courageous actions of these people, they—, they um, 
that'll actually come up again in Second Samuel two. So what they do is going to be remembered. It's it's always uh, fascinating when we see it setting the stage for future um, historical events. But I, yeah, I just I see here where Israel is taking this huge defeat. Things are kind of being set back into time. The Philistines are taking back over. Um, so, what do we what do we learn from this in terms of of what God is doing amongst His people? I'm um, certainly He hasn't left the people. You said you know that that they feel like they are in a battle against Yahweh and they're spreading their own gospel that we've defeated because they believe in Yahweh. Why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. So they're saying we believe we we've defeated this Yahweh. But that's not. But Yahweh's not defeated, of course. So, what is Yahweh doing? What is God doing with this uh, this apparent uh, defeat? If I could take you all the way back to the beginning of your study, uh, we were told in First Samuel two in Hannah's uh, magnificent prayer: "The Lord kills and brings to life; He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven." The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And in a sense, that's that is that how the book begins. And we're going to learn, as you said, when we get to the next book, that David is willing to honor this respect they showed. And Saul continually shows himself to be a flawed, failed king who does not... Uh, align with the will of God or the or the the purposes of God and he ends up in this tragic uh death at the end that is humiliating even though the the valiant men give him a decent burial it was a humiliating death and a humiliating catastrophe for the nation of Israel and uh, yet the Lord still stands as able to break to pieces his adversaries with and he will thunder against them from heaven and he will, in the final analysis, be the judge to the ends of the earth. But there's that promise. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And so we, we see the, the, the hint of, of coming David, who will be a man after God's own heart. And yet David is a flawed king as well. And it, it gives us uh, you know, just a bit, of, a bit more hint of uh, the one yet to come who will be the 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 Hamashiach of God, the the anointed of God, who will be the Messiah, and the the son of David, Jesus Christ, who will fulfill all that was promised. And, and in a sense, it takes us all the way back. The Saul story takes us all the way back to Adam as well. I mean, just like Adam was created to rule and to do great things, and was enabled and and in, uh, with good gifts uh, and called to exercise loving rule. Uh, and he had everything he needed uh, to be successful, and yet he turned his back on God in disobedience, and Saul does the same thing. And the tragedy of Saul's death is the tragedy of every of every one of us, that we we are born with the guilt of Adam, and we get really practiced at, at uh, sinning on our own. And that same turning away from God that we see all the way back to the Adam story gets reflected in Saul's story. And finally gets resolved in Jesus's story, as he's the one who, both by his active and passive obedience, uh, you know, pays the price for our sin and and redeems us. 
by fulfilling the law, the only one who ever did. Mm -hmm. Do you see Saul, as we see the end of his life here, do you see him as a character who is plagued more by his own weaknesses, or do you see him as a malevolent force? Do you see him as someone who is is usurping his authority that you know he's been given the authority but he's misusing it for his own evil means or do you just see a man who you know just succumbs to his weakness and sin yeah that is a great question uh in the modern era uh pretty much the the drift of commentaries is to paint Saul in a in a much more favorable light and in, uh, in traditionally, Christian writers thought of him as a foil to David. And whereas Saul's life was a failure, uh, David was a success. Uh, Saul uh, could not defeat Israel's enemies. David did. Saul couldn't establish dynasty. David did. And that's the traditional way of looking at him. A lot of modern writers and a lot of them critics of scripture actually have uh, tried to rehabilitate Saul and make him into a into a, a much nicer guy. One of the one of the famous writers about this period uh, said that uh, Saul saw the dark side of God in a Job-like way, and and uh, tended to blame God for his failure. I I, I see this as uh, more of the story of every man. Uh, the Lord had Lord as I said, the Lord gave to Adam great gifts and great benefits to fulfill his will and instead by uh turning inward uh that to his own will and his own thoughts and making his own way uh, we see the deterioration of adam's gifts in the in much the same way as we do saul's and uh i i think just looking at the people i'm familiar with and the world we live in uh when somebody turns their back on god i don't care how charismatic their gifts how spectacular their skills how wonderful their potential uh it goes to pot uh augustine said we we we're born curved in upon ourselves, and that tendency to curve in upon ourselves uh is in my mind the the source of of the decay and the deterioration that we see in in saul uh certainly his his melancholy brooding temperament didn't help him any but uh, I, you know, his failure to obey God, I think, set him up for everything else that happened to him. And it, it just confirmed him uh, on a path. Every bad decision he made kept confirming him in that path um, because the gifts of the Spirit were never given to be used to oppose the work of God. And that's exactly what Saul did. He used his God-given gifts against God to do his own thing. And if you want to credit him, in a sense, with being weak, okay, I'll, 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 I'll agree with that, but I, I, I'm not going to let him off the hook with just weakness. Right. No, and I think that makes a lot of sense as we look at David, because really David and Saul are both weak, sinful people. They yet are. One, but yet one turns away from God. You're right. They both make plenty of horrific mistakes, but one turns away from God and one, one continues returning to the Lord. And so the results are different, you know? And, and so we, I think if we look at Saul, we shouldn't see him as someone to imitate. Um, David, we shouldn't see as someone to imitate, except in the sense that we should um, make sure that we turn to the Lord and, and, and confess our sins as David did, even yeah. when he was called to account. 
Well, one of the one of the reasons why uh, I have this last twelve years been such a uh, energetic, excited proponent of all things Lutheran is, I think, in our tradition of proclaiming, delivering, and proclaiming the the gifts of God in forgiveness every single week. Uh, we put the focus where it ought to be. The gospel is about God coming and reaching us with a word of forgiveness. And when we come to him in repentance, that forgiveness cleanses us from all unrighteousness, as First John says. And it, it really allows us not to get caught in these, in these dysfunctional cycles uh, of, a, of, of behavior that cause us to turn inward and, and away from God, but instead to keep coming back in, in brokenness and repentance to receive once more the gifts of forgiveness that he so freely dispenses to us. And I think the key to David was when he sinned, you get Psalm 51. When, when Saul sinned uh, and he's confronted, you didn't obey God. He says, well, I did obey God except for those things that you told me not to do. And, you know, <laughs> he wants to blame everybody else. David, on the other hand, uh, does a horrible thing with Bathsheba and Uriah and and the rest of that, and you get Psalm fifty one as the response. He he is broken by his sin, and it gets back to that whole issue of what message do you proclaim to unrepentant sinners? What message do you repay you 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 proclaim to repentant sinners? And and you you bring only gospel to those who are broken by sin, and you and you give law to those who are arrogant and unyielding in repentance. Well, I think that's a good place for us to come to an end today. Um, so glad that you joined us officially. This is the uh, <laughs> Reverend Dennis McFadden, uh, one of the helping pastors, one of many, it sounds like, at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Brother, thanks for being on the show with me. Thank you so much, Pastor. I loved being with you. Folks, the saga of Saul, even though he is demise now, and David actually doesn't end tomorrow, we're jumping right into 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel tells how David becomes the king of Israel, but it doesn't happen right away. And he himself faces both success and failure, but he also demonstrates a faithfulness to Yahweh. But more importantly, maybe Yahweh's faithfulness to him and his promise and David's need for his mercy. Throughout this upcoming book, God's going to reveal David in times of both strength and weakness, but nevertheless a man after God's own heart. So join us tomorrow as we open up chapter 1, through which the Holy Spirit is going to make us witnesses to David's reaction as he hears about the death, not only Saul, but also his close friend Jonathan and Saul's sons. Hear how David mourns for them and actually exercises judgment against an Amalekite who comes to him with an interesting story to tell. He says, that he was the one who dealt the final death blow against King Saul, whilst King Saul is the one who asked him to do it. So, hmm, how does that work out for that Amalekite, and how does it all fit into the grander story of Christ our King? Until then, folks, may God's peace and blessings be with us all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.